Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Goster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more red days. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front to take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. All right, our first show of 2024. Happy New Year to everyone. We have rung in the new year. We're excited because we get another opportunity to wake the woke with truth, the Constitution, and some common sense. Matt, what a tremendous opportunity to be back with you uh, in this show. And we are actually in a new time slot today. For the first time, we're moving to drive time, 4 p.m. I'm pretty pumped about that. I am too, and uh, it's a great lead-in to some of the other good content on 93.3. Uh, it's going to be a good year. I think it is going to be a good year. I, one of the things that helps me understand that it's going to be a new year is that when I was reviewing the news that's been made since the new year, it just seems like the left is giving us a plethora of things to talk about. Uh, I've been looking, <laughs> man, it's just uh, the insanity of the left continues to astound me. And we are moving into an election year. Uh, everybody needs to remember, we talked about this a little bit at the end of last year, but 2024 is the big kahuna. This is the big break point, I believe, for America, this upcoming election. And I don't see any kind of strategy coming out of the left. I see no strategy coming out of the Democratic Party. I just see more and more chaos. And uh, I tell you, just start with the firing of Claudine Gay, uh, Matt, uh, from Harvard. Uh, talk about being off their game in terms of the national talking points. This is just unbelievable. It is interesting that the, there have been um, firings or resignations or whatever the you know technical category that you would put these in from these higher education universities, which I think basically shows that there are there is some sanity in maybe the donor class or in some of the other stakeholders you might say at some of these universities. The the kind of academic establishment that is employed by those universities, not so much, but there has been, there has been some accountability there. I mean, the this Claudine Gay thing is so interesting, you know, plagiarism now has been the thing that's come, come around. It, it bit her a little bit earlier in her career and now has been kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. And the defense that comes from the left for her. I mean, they basically downplay um, any of the any of the um, moments of plagiarism that have been in her in her academic record, or that they say, you know, it's not really a big deal. She just messed up. She was sloppy with her mm-hmm. attribution. They come up with all these little um, forgivable phrases, and then ultimately the thing that we all see is it's basically like, well, this is a this is a woman or she's of color, therefore double standard which doesn't fit the facts. There's white men that get fired for plagiarism and that get removed from office. There's specific examples of that happening. Um, most recently that, that I saw someone had posted on the internet was the president of the university of South Carolina who was fired for plagiarizing a speech among other things. So it's, it's not a double standard. It's a, it's a real concern. And, you know, you're basically seeing um, some accountability 
finally happening at these uh, really leftist institutions. Yeah, I counted that word now twice. You mentioned accountability. I really don't think that the left wants any accountability, and they typically sort of have to be backed into it. I just think that the plagiarism was uh, so significant and to a large degree that they had no choice but to help move her along. But again, to your point, Joy Reid, one of our favorite commentators on the left, you know, went all in defending her, saying that this was a firing that was based on the fact that she's a woman, that she is uh, African-American, and that there's nothing that the world can tolerate less than a rising African-American woman. I mean, they went right back to the gender envy, the gender uh, civil wars, and the race wars in an attempt to try to push back on the right. And the simple thing to say is, hey, she plagiarized. She should not be the head of an institution that is supposed to be the gold standard for academic performance in the world. There's so much you can say about this. Uh, the 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 playbook is basically if you're an oppressed category, if you're in the oppressed category, you have immunity to do anything, right? Because you can't ever be held account without it being a, some sort of racism or some sort of you know CRT oppression being um, the defense that comes. The the thing to me that was the smoking gun on her plagiarism. If you read some of the um, some of the snippets, is that the words were changed slightly? You know, if it was a sloppy attribution and you actually just pulled a direct quote from something, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, that was my rough draft. I forgot to put the quotation marks uh-huh. and, and do the footnote." Uh-huh. You know that you could plausible, right? Right. But it's when you change a few words. I mean, this is stuff that fifth graders do or ninth graders, where it's like, "Oh, I got to I got to put this in my own words." You know, so I'll change an abbreviated word to the full word, or I'll use a, a very similar verb, but leave the other 29 words the same. Yeah, it's sort of like when the murderer uh, claims insanity, but then you see all the steps he took to rationally hide the uh, yeah. weapon and all Signs of deception, exactly. Right. Right. Like, we'll change a few words and just hope nobody does any of the fact-checking. And honestly, I think this is this is systemic for the entire higher academic community in which there is very little original thought. The, the whole thing is a shell game of absorbing the thoughts of other people, regurgitating them, repackaging them, and get, get then getting your set of credentials so that you can go on and and say what you want to say. Ultimately, these kinds of figures are not academics. They're activists, but they're doing it at a higher education institution. And, and, and getting well paid for it, by yeah, the way, but we can talk about that in another segment. <laughs> getting getting very well paid, uh, but, but ultimately it just shows that they're fakes. There, there, there is no original thought here. They're just repeating one, one basic message, which isn't that complicated, you know, which is basically um, everything that white people do is oppressive. And that's the story that you tell for every incident that comes along. So let's change the subject just a bit, but continuing in the same vein of leftist irrationality, what the heck is going on at the border right now? A lot of bad stuff. Record, uh, Record border crossings, over 300,000 in December, and uh, no end in sight. You and I were at a speech earlier this week where, where we were reminded, or maybe I was learning for the first time, I'm not sure which, just how many steps the Biden administration has taken to make it easy to get into this country if you're pleading asylum to the extent that there's a an app you can download from Borders and Customs, fill out all your paperwork in advance, and then get on a commercial flight and fly into various cities throughout the United States. You don't even have to go to Mexico and go through the border. And, um, you know, this is, it's just, 
an influx, no end in sight, no leadership in sight. So Congress is talking, at least Republicans in Congress are talking more about potentially impeaching Mayorkas, who's the head of Homeland Security. And it was interesting. He basically was in an interview this week complaining that there essentially has been a worldwide migrant crisis due to the increase. I'm going to paraphrase and I quote, I don't want to be accused of any uh, Claudine Gay actions here, but he, he basically said that there, because of uh, climate events, because of the rise in totalitarian regimes, and because of uh, just general chaos uh, around the world, that we're ha- economic oppression, that we're having this massive influx of uh, migration patterns all over the world, not just in the United States, um, and was kind of blaming it on this on this general culture, this worldwide culture, instead of taking responsibility for what's going on at the border. Uh, apparently, they've not only had a record, record number of people in December that have crossed the border, but they've also had a record number of sub-Saharan Africans now coming across the southern border. They've had um, the Asian-American population coming across the southern border in significant numbers. My point is not to uh, levy any charges at those particular groups or say they're worse than anyone else coming across the border illegally. It's just the point is, is that there's this worldwide signal now that if you live anywhere, if you can just get to Mexico, you can get into the United States, no holds, no barred. Right. And it is great to live in the United States. I mean, that this is a, a truth, a fact, right? And, and people all over the world would like to live in the United States. Some of them, there are true asylum spe- seekers, right? I mean, there are true people who are living in some very oppressive regime. And it's a question about how many asylum seekers can we accommodate. I mean, I think that that question has to be asked. But it's not surprising that people all over the world would want to come to the United States. I think the the question has to be, if you accept people, what are the conditions of those acceptance? What sort of requirements of uh, worldview and values and those sorts of things that you would want to ask of these people so that when they enter the United States, they are um, – supporting the American idea, not just benefiting from it. So here's the deal. Um, It's unfortunate. There was a school shooting again this week, and that's a real crisis. We'll talk about that. But here's the sad thing as we get into the next segment, Matt. It's that Democrats are going to look at that shooting as an opportunity to go on attack because they're losing on so many other issues. We're going to talk about polling and issues in the next segment coming up with Mitch Brown, who's a pollster for Signal. Stay with us. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Making common sense cool again. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment two, and here we are in the new year, Matt. 2024, and the left is already showing that they're in complete and total meltdown mode. Full chaos. The border is out of control. We were just talking about that. Talking about the fact that uh, this situation with uh, Claudine Gay and the crisis in higher ed seems to have created problems for the left. Biden's failures on the international stage where we don't even seem to be leading anymore, either in the Ukraine or in Israel. Uh, I'm not suggesting we have to move forward with any kind of military action. I'm just saying we're not hearing anything out of the White House on these topics anymore. 
uh, other than trying to get secure more funding for Congress on the basis of those conflicts. Um, we just saw Stephen Moore, who he wrote a great op-ed the other day and has been writing some other pieces on the crisis of inflation right now that the Democrats are not dealing with to the point that uh, African-American voters, Hispanic voters, who voted for Biden in droves back in 2020 when Biden uh, took on Trump for the first time, are now beginning to express dissatisfaction and saying basically anybody but Biden. Now, this has led uh, in the month of December to the key powers that be inside the Democrat Party, including Barack Obama himself, who actually went public with the New York Times and said, look, these polling numbers are a problem. Because up until now, the Biden uh, stance has been essentially to say, well, you're reading the wrong polls, or they're shaping these polls to get what they want out of it. I'm just, I'm fascinated to see now that everyone but Joe Biden is saying, oh my God, we have a huge, huge problem here. Yeah, and it's like they're trying to get the keys away from Grandpa, and they're not, he's still cogent enough to write them out of the will or something like that they can't quite figure out (laughs) great analogy how do we how do we get this how do we convince the guy at the top that he's just not the the man for the moment the the numbers are stunning i mean when you see what some of these national polls or public polls are saying about minority support eroding for joe biden i mean and this is when you've got the squishy middle up in arms about trump being a criminal and and saying he needs to be in in uh, prison and you have large segments of the population saying, yeah, but we would rather he be president than the guy who's in there now. Yeah. It's really a, it's, it's a, um, it's uncharted territory. I think, I, I don't know if you go back to like Nixon and Carter and Ford and those guys, maybe there are some parallels, but, uh, this feels very uncharted. Well, here's a couple of key points. And then we do have a pollster who's joining us. I sort of teed him up at the last, at the end of the first segment, but uh, Mitch Brown's going to join us here in a second. But look, uh, a poll just rolled out. In the last week, national poll said that only 34% of Americans right now said they're better off today than they were when Biden was first elected. Yeah, that's a bad number. That's a really, really bad number. And it's probably wrong by 20 points. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> who are these 34% of the people who think this? Right, right, right. Exactly. Maybe they were uh, they were caught on Friday night after a few uh, end-of-the-week beers or something. Uh, Carl Rove, um, I, I worked for Rove back during the uh, Bush candidacies, and Rove is certainly a smart political guy. I've been a little disappointed with some of his actions in the last couple of cycles, pushing for more establishment Republicans. But he even wrote a piece the other day titled, Can Even Trump Save a Biden Presidency? Meaning that everyone was hoping that Trump was going to be this lightning rod that would give Everyone an opportunity to say, even with all the Biden's failures, I'd still rather have Biden. But now he's even saying, I don't think even Trump can save Joe Biden at yeah, this point. It's a great headline. Yeah, it really is. Well, we're blessed today to have on the phone with us Mitchell Brown, uh, who I'm going to refer to uh, more personally as Mitch. But Mitchell is a, uh, if you look at his resume, he's just, he's a stud in the world of communications, worked uh, for uh, various posts inside of Homeland Security in the White House, and uh, also on uh, presidential campaigns, worked for a Trump victory in 2020, 
and uh, now has joined uh, one of my favorite polling firms, Signal, uh, which uh, does a lot of work uh, nationally and has done some great work in the state of Florida. Currently, they serve as the pollster for presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. So they know what they're doing. They've got a pretty good pulse on all the early states and on national issues. Mitch, are you with us today? Yes, I am. That was quite the intro. I'm very flattered. <laughs> well, Mitch, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And it's always fun to be able to talk with someone who's uh, doing what I would call relevant and uh, probably uh, frequent polling at this point, is my guess, as you guys get ready to, to look at some of the early states. Just kind of give us a good sense right now as to uh, what you're seeing on the issue side. I don't want to really talk about the details of the presidential contest, but on the issues, what is it that's really driving people's concerns? Is it the economy? Is it the border? Uh, what's your sense? Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of multifaceted. I mean, we'll talk about like the economy aspect first. Um, I saw you just hinted at 34% people said that they are in a better place than when Biden took office. Um, so obviously, you're looking at the middle group of people. Um, who obviously their economic standard of living has gone down. If you see a recent study came out a couple of weeks ago and it showed what the average like adjusted wage is currently, and then it compared it back years before. So it was showing how people in 1960 were earning more than they are today. Mm. 1970, 1980, the only time when someone earned the equivalent of what the average uh, income is today in America was 1995. Um, so other than that, we're in our worst time in the past 60 years for wages. So the news agencies can go run out and the White House can go run out and say, hey, we added this many more jobs this month, which the New York Times said this morning. But again, that's not what people are feeling in their wallet. When they go to the grocery store, they're still seeing the prices rise. It still costs a lot of money to fill up your car. Gas is not $1.80 like it was the day I left the White House when I was working there. People are still feeling those things. Now... On the contrary there, does that actually matter to people? Mm-hmm. Again, if you go back and look, that was the main pitch Republicans were giving in 22, is that the economy was bad. That was the message that national Republicans chose to run on. And what was countered on the left was that a threat to democracy and kind of a fear-mongering message. Um, so that was kind of juxtaposed in that way. So right now people are feeling that, and that's why you're only seeing 34%. Another point to that is just talking about the shift in the parties is Republican Party is no longer the country club establishment that it was even 20 years ago. Um, And so when you're looking at 34 percent of people who said that they are in a better place, um, it's those who don't really have to worry about economic issues, Mm -hmm. those who feel like their other issues have been taken care of. Now, when you look at some of these swing areas like the Philadelphia suburbs on the main line, where it's very high uh, earning people and a lot of that typical suburban woman vote, when they don't check the price of something at a grocery store, when they don't look at the price of gas, when those things don't matter to them, for them, hey, they they feel like their quality of life might have gotten better. So now they're not worrying about abortion on the ballot or whatever it might be. So it's kind of breaking that uh, little divide there into what Republicans need to do to become a larger party in the future and win more races is kind of accept that working class mentality. And that's the message that I think we need to shift gear on. And that's, again, going back to the bake in the America first of Trump and, and DeSantis is, again, that almost populist belief of bringing up the American worker and talking about wages and, and what we can do in that sense, instead of this kind of longstanding Republican tradition of just 
only saying we want lower taxes and being super business friendly. Mitch, th- there is so much uh, about this election cycle that's different than than what we experienced in the past. Are there any questions that you're seeing on polls that are surprising to you? Are there are there issues or messages that that are getting tested? I mean, whether it's Biden's bad numbers, um, maybe the importance of foreign affairs, which seems to be getting more of a conversation this go around, or you know, like the public trial of Donald Trump, are, are any of those things surprising you? Yeah, I mean, I think on, on the Republican front is I think this election needs to be almost messaged back to what we were talking about in 16 compared to 20. If you go back to the Trump campaign in 16, if you could remember one message, it was the border. I mean, that was kind of the most poignant factor, the thing that stood out the most. Yep. And again, also countering China. Those were two of Trump's biggest things. And while everyone kind of laughed at those ideas of being the focal point of your campaign, that's what resonated with people. That's, again, what resonated with these working class communities who saw their jobs taken from them and the people who've seen their quality of life and their communities change over time. So I think harping back to those issues is how we go about our international trade, how we police our border. Those things need to become at the forefront. And from what we've seen in our data and what I know other Republicans are seeing is that is a message forward of building a coalition in that talking about the border and these foreign issues is not uh, just going after our normal, typical audience and that's winning voters even amongst the Hispanic population. Mitch, I got to ask you this. We're getting ready to go into break. I'm going to hold you over um, after the break, but just really quickly, as it relates to big cities, uh, law and order, be thinking, uh, if you can, about what you're seeing on the Democrat side, or at least uh, maybe with voters in urban areas who are concerned about the border related to this disaster and chaos we're seeing in the um, inner cities around the country. Uh, You guys stick with us. We are going to move to break now. Mitch, stick with us on the line. That way we'll get a few more minutes with you coming out of break. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. (laughs) And back again. America in View will be right back. Universal truth and common sense reign supreme. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're talking with Mitchell Brown today. Uh, Mitch is a pollster, works with Signal, one of the premier polling con- uh, companies in the country, uh, mainly doing Republican races. And uh, he's sharing about with us a little bit of his insight on some of the issues and some of the reasons why the Biden administration may be in real trouble for reelection. Now, Mitch, at the end of the last segment, we started talking about crime, law and order issues, we are seeing, at least anecdotally, people expressing more fear. And a lot of these fears expressed seem to be coming from the left side of the political spectrum. Are you guys picking that up? Are people tying the border to some of this inner city violence and chaos? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. And obviously, you got part of the uh, Democrat Party on the left that no messaging is ever going to work on them from our side. But we're talking about that moderate or people who'd almost say they're independent. And then the traditional like blue dog them are seeing what's happening in their cities, like whether it be outside of Boston, New York, Chicago. Again, you can go up and down the coast and and show like the crime that's happening. And what you're seeing there is people are, are fed up with the policies. And so you'll see like smart Democrats or people who are good at messaging in places, distancing themselves from the not having bail, having someone in, uh, or I mean, or sorry, offering the casual bail and having people out the same day, like what's happening in New York with people reoffending uh, the day after they're out or hours after they're out in Chicago. 
And you see people distance themselves from that. So you, now you even see in a few of these swing districts, people saying that they're tough on crime Democrats or that they're, you see like how cinema was kind of messaging in Arizona about being tough on the border as a Democrat. Um, so it's definitely something that you're seeing that moderate Democrat and that independent voter pushing towards Republicans. Cause if you talk about any issue, uh, Crime and public safety are what Republicans have the most trust in comparatively to Democrats. When you think, like I, how I harped back before on the economy, Republicans don't actually win the economy message as convincingly as they do on crime. That's amazing. I mean, it's, I guess, not surprising, but interesting to see that it's it's actually the strongest issue. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit, Mitch. Talk about the early states. Are there things that you're polling in, say, Iowa or New Hampshire that, that don't matter or matter in a different way than they do on the national stage? Yeah, of course. Iowa, obviously, it's its own separate thing because polling isn't as big of a factor because Iowa doesn't have a traditional primary. It's a caucus. So it's much harder, and I wouldn't put as much faith into the public polling that you're seeing coming from Iowa just because, again, it's harder to to poll a caucus than it is to poll a traditional primary. Um, In Iowa, kind of how you break down those first three states is Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Iowa is what you're going to see kind of traditionally is like what uh, a broad spectrum of Republicans think like. And so going in there, you'll see, okay, this is a good water barometer of how the election would go overall in the country in a Republican primary. New Hampshire, and while you're seeing Haley surge a little bit, uh, again, is it's not a closed primary like you see in Iowa where you have to be a registered Republican in New Hampshire independents and Democrats can go vote in Republican primary. So you're going to see that shift be a little more to the left, and you see why a moderate can be successful. And then you head down to South Carolina, where it's deep red. That primary shows you exactly what the, I guess, base or that America First Republican wants to see, and why Trump is so powerful is seeing how he'll perform there, even against an incredibly popular former governor of the state who still won't come close. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the unfortunate parts, in my opinion, Mitch. I'm just expressing opinion here, okay? <laughs> I'm not asking you to, to even support me in this opinion, but it's frustrating that these early three or four states, if you included Nevada, even though Nevada is a bit of a disaster this year, there, there tends to be a little bit of a tyranny that we've given those states to drive messaging in the process that may not be entirely reflected in the rest of the country and in the party. Uh, to that end, though, I do want to ask you this. Where are you seeing cultural issues pop up right now? You know, last cycle in 2022, at least in Florida and in many parts of the Southeast, we saw even, and I think you may have seen this in Virginia as well, uh, with Youngkin's victory, Um, but you saw soccer moms and uh, what I would call moderates across the board going nuts over this idea of boys using girls' bathrooms in schools, of uh, girls' sports being imperiled by this radical transgenderism. Are you seeing that pop up as much, or is that really kind of regressing to the lesser important issues this time? No, it's, it's, it's not regressing at all. I actually think that's the best counter to the life issue for Republicans. Um, the only way to sway that middle, uh, higher-earning, again, suburban vote. Again, you saw DeSantis and uh, the First Lady go out and say this in Iowa talking about moms, talking about how much that matters, talking about how much kids matter. And we've seen this again across states. I'm a Virginia resident, so I, I know this firsthand. Loudoun County, 
changed everything with what mm-hmm. they allowed in those schools. That's why Glenn Youngkin is now governor here. That is across the board. Everywhere in the country you're seeing that. You're seeing it in school board races that are now well-funded. If people don't like social change when it comes to their children, they think that they should be the ones instilling values there. So you can get someone who is blue on every single issue imaginable, but just want their kid to learn the ABCs in traditional division tables. Mm-hmm. They don't want anything else there. So that cultural issue is rising to the top. Again, other things are are falling off. Like none of the other cultural issues even come up in a primary. You don't hear anyone talk about the second amendment as much in, in primaries. Again, protecting kids is now the, the topic of the day for Republicans culturally. Mitch, I've got a question. I may be getting ahead of ourselves more into the general election, but you've seen these shifts within states where Iowa is a good example. Iowa was a blue state in general elections, at least for presidential races until I think um, from 88 to 16, Iowa only voted for Republican one time in the in the reelection of George W. Bush. But in the Trump era, it's been a red state. Florida has kind of famously taken a rightward shift and was the perennial purple state, but now is 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 put in that hard red state category. Virginia has had its own strange morphing. Are you seeing states where you feel like they're going to be off the board for one party or the other that that would surprise us in 2024? Yeah. So I, I just wrote an op-ed about this, about what America First and Trump did to change the battleground map. So if you go back to Bush days, Colorado was a state that was in play, as was New Mexico, New Hampshire, states like this. Those in the Trump world and America First world are no longer in play. Same with Virginia. But what you see is Ohio is no longer a swing state on the top of a presidential ballot. Trump has solidified that vote. Florida, same thing. The America First movement is pushed there. That's why people move to the land of freedom and DeSantis' leadership there has shown this. States like that are solidly red. Then you have the states that are now in play that weren't. So I just talked about how Colorado, New Mexico, New Hampshire were swing states. Uh, it's going to be hard for a Republican to win there again. But what you have is the rest of this Rust Belt blue-collar vote, the future of the Republican Party, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Those are states that are now in play for Republicans. Obviously, Nevada is going to be another big swing state. What you have there is what new Republicans can go for. It's states with larger electoral college votes, and it's states that have that more blue-collar swing. And what they're looking for is kind of what I talked about. That's where you kind of hit the economy and those people where their jobs have been lost. And that's kind of, again, where you see Trump's effect. And I think that was actually a good thing for the Republican Party. Because if you go back and look at what, uh, how Romney and McCain lost and look at what Obama did, and then even go back to when W won, and then look at Trump's electoral win in 16, and then even his electoral loss in 20, it's a better playing map for Republicans. And so, again, this is why I harped back before about how important it is to, again, find this new coalition of blue-collar voters. Now, Mitch, listen, you're really blowing up my narrative here because I've been telling people for the last almost 20 years now that the difference between uh, Bush and McCain was the fact that I worked on Bush's campaign and not on McCain's. Uh, Now you're telling me it's about a shift in issues. (laughs) Well, hey, Bush did his job. Bush won two elections. Yeah, amen. You got it, my friend. Again, it's... That was now, what, 04, so now we're coming up on 20 years removed. That's right. So again, naturally, things change. And so Bush was, had the right message and ran the right campaign and did what he had to do to win. I'm saying that what we're looking at now is no longer that same map. Our country doesn't look the same. 
and voter sentiment is not the same as it was in 2000 or 2004. I think the thing that's interesting to me is fascinating is we have a real opportunity for a seesaw here, which we have not seen in presidential history in, uh, I guess, 100 years or so. Um, here's the deal. Uh, we're talking with Mitch Brown today, pollster with, with Signal Polling, one of the premier polling uh, firms in the country. Mitch, I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going to ask you to stay on uh, through the break one more time. We're going to get uh, one more question in on you to uh, get into the fourth segment. You guys stick with us with Mitch Brown uh, talking about presidential politics and polling going into 2024. Never fear, Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Where we still don't understand the insanity of the woke, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're talking to Mitch Brown today, a pollster with Signal, uh, who has been doing nationwide polling for multiple candidates and also issues. Uh, Mitch is a, a great expert, and Mitch, we really appreciate you joining us today. I just couldn't let you go. I had to hold you through the break because I, I wanted to ask this one question. Uh, I, I have been convinced, and by the way, none of us in the studio here have taken a hard public opinion on any of the candidates. Obviously, I'm from Florida, and we got a great governor, but we've had multiple opportunities to say good things about uh, Vivek, uh, multiple opportunities to say good things about some of the other candidates that were in the race who no longer are. And uh, I think at the end of the day, any of us would rather see Trump as president instead of Biden. But um, we seem to be in this paradigm shift where anything can happen. I mean, presidential politics just are not as predictable. So here's, here's my last question for you. And uh, you can be as detailed as you want. Can Trump be beaten? And here's what I mean by that. It seems that there is enough of a uh, counter to Trump out there to say, well, there's some things we don't like. You know, he's only going to be able to serve one term. Uh, you know, his age is starting to factor in. Uh, he hasn't outlined a real clear agenda. He seems to, seems to keep talking about, you know, 2020 and and uh, how the how the election was stolen instead of outlining what he's actually going to do now going forward. Uh, there's there's multiple areas now where we can criticize Trump. Uh, my question is this. Can he be beaten in a primary? It looks like he's going to win uh, Iowa uh, in about 10 days. Uh, looks like he's ahead in New Hampshire. Um, your guy, Vivek, may be one of the few who could, who because of his financial prowess, who could go deep in the process. Is it possible to beat him if someone gets to a mono a mono contest with him? Short answer, no. <laughs> a very honest answer. <laughs> well, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Again, we talked about how there hasn't been a seesaw in a hundred years. Trump is a once in a century uh, style political figure. He's it's more of a religious experience than a political experience. Mm-hmm. Um, half to uh, probably fifty-five to sixty percent of the Republican Party is loyal to him. And again, it's not saying they don't like other candidates. It's just that's where it is. He's, again, brought people to the table who never voted before or who weren't Republicans before, who voted their union line. He just has this coalition of people that are super loyal to him. Now, of course, I mean, there's investigations, there's indictments, there's all of this. Uh, that that can have an impact. But if you removed all of those things from the situation, no, there, he, he wouldn't lose the primary. 
But getting it to that mano a mano situation, the the best hope that people would have on again coming from my end would I would say unfortunately is uh, former governor Nikki Haley, mm. um, just because it's a different thing. Yeah. What Vivek and, and DeSantis have is that they have a lot of people who would still choose Trump. I mean, like a Vivek voter is a younger voter, uh, but is that an America first voter who like Vivek, but would vote for Trump. DeSantis, you kind of see this middle ground of people who are, who aren't your again, old style country club or former neocon, uh, was a term to throw out Republicans. It's, they love what he's done as an executive. And it's something that everyone can hold up and shine to is that he has a great track record and is delivered for uh, the residents of Florida. Now that hasn't translated as much to the campaign because it's been hard for the Santa's team to show outside of Florida, what that means. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of it is going back to it's a Trump talking points. So it's how do you out Trump? You can't go and hit him from the left when you're on. And then it's hard to flank him from the right. Uh, what Nikki has again, is that contrarian approach is people who will argue that Trump isn't, electable will say this is what we need this is our shining example to get a a wider coalition of voters and what i argued is that i don't think it actually matters when it comes to pure electoral politics national vote sure but this election's coming down to fifty thousand people spread out across four states yep that's all that matters in in the general um and like i talked about before is yes, Nikki Haley would do a better job in Georgia than Trump in a general election. But she wouldn't do a better job in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just objective right there. Um, but again, like I said, it's it's a mute point for, for the most part. Again, obviously anything can happen outside of the actual electoral process. But until we see that, Trump is the nominee for uh, 24. Well, I want to tell you uh, in our audience what you all just got a, a uh, fantastic dose of right there. Honesty from your pollster. Uh, the reality is is that whenever you get ready to run for office, you always want a, an honest pollster to check the insanity of the internal campaign desire to win. And uh, Mitch, uh, I really appreciate your answer and, and outlining that for the audience. I think that's helpful for everybody. Mitch Brown, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Um, It's been a tremendous conversation, and uh, I wish you well, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk again sometime in the very near future. Yeah, I appreciate it, Matt, Brett. Thank you, guys. It was a great conversation, and I'm here anytime you guys want to hear more. Thanks, Mitch. Great to talk. Have a good one. All right, tremendous tremendous conversation there with Mitch Brown. Um, Love the guys over at Signal. I've used them on quite a few things in the past, and they've, of course, gotten a national reputation, Matt, was really interested to hear his uh, analysis there at the end. That wasn't quite the answer that I was thinking he was going to give, but again, I appreciate his honesty and, and his analysis of the voting electorate. You know, we I, I just want to pose this question to you conversationally for our audience because I've thought about this myself. There are probably mistakes that uh, the DeSantis campaign has made. Uh, every presidential candidate who runs for the first time makes mistakes. I think some of the mistakes he's made, he's been unfairly criticized for because I don't think that they are really what I would call um, uh, campaign enders, but the press has tried to make it a campaign ender. I think that Ron DeSantis' biggest crime is that the press originally saw him as being the Trump killer, 
until they realized that he was actually more conservative ideologically than Donald Trump, and then they turned on him, and and that began to look for opportunities to cut his knees out from under him. My question to you is, does DeSantis come back if he does uh, lose, as Mitch is suggesting that all of these uh, candidates will, and have a future in 2028 as the rising star in the Republican Party now? And what does he need to do to maintain that status? Well, he's he's governor of Florida, and he's going to be governor of Florida for, for – uh, he's entering his um, – what I guess is sixth legislative session with two more to go. So yeah, he absolutely has a future. He's been a very effective governor of Florida. I mean, he's been at the helm transforming, as we talked earlier in the show, of Florida from being this purple state. I mean, he beat Andrew Gillum by what? 20,000 votes. I forget exactly what the margin was. Yep. You know, to to winning his reelection by like 20 points. So and, the, and now, by the way, Republicans outnumber Democrats in the state of Florida by yeah. six, seven hundred thousand now. Yeah, it's been a sea change, and I think it's it's absolutely been a response to positive leadership, to good leadership. And Ron DeSantis is somebody who's willing to use his political capital. There have been some other strong politicians in Florida who've been more the type that try to figure out where the parade is going and just just try to stay in front of it. Whereas I, I believe he's really tried to use that political capital for a reason. You know, somebody like Nikki Haley who does not have a current position, I mean, she's just a candidate, someone like that is probably going to be a little more challenged in trying to stay relevant if if they're looking to the next round of elections. Well, I don't think Trump's going to be appointing her to any more ambassadorships if he is privileged to win again. Let me say this. I will assert that because of governors like Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, and because of the contrast that they have given America between this uh, radical insanity on the left and just what I would call common sense leadership in government on the right, that those two will be the horses that essentially have defined this race and will be big contributors to the reason why Trump will win if Trump wins re-election in November. And my advice to DeSantis would be to simply come back home and keep doing what you were doing, man. Just keep governing well, pushing back against D.C. All the problems aren't going to go away with Trump. If he's uh, elected president, there's still going to be problems. He just needs to keep leading. But I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, Matt, but I, I don't know what else to say to, to DeSantis except well, don't change. Exactly. Stay true to yourself. And I, I, every presidential cycle has been full of things that seem like they were inevitably going to happen Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? They're, they're very dynamic. And so you never know for sure exactly what's going to happen. Um, I mean, think about um, just any of the sort of foregone conclusions that were out there. You know, John McCain was dead on arrival and the 08 race, and he was like in last place in a lot of people's minds, and he ended up being the nominee. There, there's just all kinds of things that can that can happen and change. And I think that's basically the message for all political leaders and it's something that Donald Trump is pretty good at is just sort of sticking to your guns and not not worried about the wins, not worrying about what might happen, just being true to your core and, and trying to pursue ideology that you believe in. Well, Matt, we're getting ready to close out, and it's been a great first show for 2024. I want to tell everyone in our audience to go register to vote. That's the key. Conservatives have to vote. It doesn't matter who our leaders are. If we don't vote, we don't win. Go vote in 2024. Thanks for our first edition of American View in 2024.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Making their way the only way they know how. Let's just.